This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, John Nichols on politics in the Senate. We'll also speak with Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. He says the Supreme Court will soon have five Republican justices, all of whom were seated illegitimately. But first... Amy Willens on Kavanaugh, Trump, and Women. Trump Watch starts right now. We start today with Amy Willens. She's, of course, a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, best known for her award-winning work on Haiti. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. So just to review, last Thursday we had Kavanaugh shouting and sobbing and sneering and asking how he could be accused of attempted rape since he had been admitted to Yale. And we had the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, all of them old white men, sitting silent and sullen while their female assistant tried to trip up Christine Blasey Ford. What did you make of that? Uh, it was amazing to watch the sort of Republican marionette, the the female marionette being brought out in front of these guys to protect them. Yeah. Uh, ladies who defend men. Mm. It was really interesting. And their fear, their knowledge, their understanding that had they questioned her, they would have looked like a bunch of old white bullies. Uh, they knew that. And so they brought out this really nice kind of not very effective uh prosecutor. And um, it was just uh, another sad commentary on how the Republicans have handled this whole thing, this whole fiasco. And Christine Blasey Ford herself, while recounting the horrible story of the attempted rape she experienced at the hands of Brett Kavanaugh when she was 15 years old, allegedly, she was very, how would you describe her demeanor? I would describe it as uh, measured, um, careful, uh, sincere, you know, all the things you would want in a Supreme Court justice. Helpful. She kept saying helpful, she wanted to be helpful. Fair. Um, she told it as she had experienced it, but she knew there were lapses in her memory. She was honest about them. Uh, that's what President Trump mocked uh, yesterday in his uh, rally. He mocked her uh, lack of certainty about certain things. But of course, for me, that makes a witness more likely to be credible than if they know the whole every in and out. That's that's when you get a liar. And Kavanaugh himself was, you know, angry and shouting, yelling, uh, sobbing. Uh, his defender said, well, he's right to be mad because uh, they're this is an exercise in character assassination, and he has daughters, and so of course he's angry. That's the only, that's the right thing to be when someone is right. attacking. That's the right thing to be when the thing that you are have always been headed to have, i.e., a seat on the Supreme Court, is being taken away from you. That's the theory of their argument that everything he has done is so decent and right, and he has been proper all his life. And therefore, this is really unfair. And that's why he was so angry. I like to ask people how they would feel if the allegedly uh, victim of a rape attempt had come out 
crying, sniffing, whining, yelling about her how her rights had been infringed, her rights, a female, while Kavanaugh had behaved as well as Christine Blasey Ford had. It, she would not have been uh, listened to at all if she had spoken the way he did. Yet a man who's really not being held up in that way gets away with behaving in that manner. Imagine if Dr. Ford was not a woman with a PhD who's a professor who's very calm and rational and explaining what happened. Imagine, imagine if she were, I'm going to quote Katha Pollitt here, imagine if she were poor or fat or a woman of color. Imagine if she had had a rough divorce followed by numerous boyfriends. Imagine if she had talked about how much she liked beer and cried self-pitying tears. Exactly. She would have been disregarded utterly and it would have been a terrible thing. And That's not allowed, women who are like that. He picked the wrong woman to have... Uh, this this scene with because she's so acceptable to a large group of Americans. Of course, there were at least uh, two women who were angry and yelling, and that's the two women who confronted Jeff Flake in the elevator. It's an illuminating story about how Jeff Flake changed his mind. Anna Maria Arquila and Maria Gallagher, while the cameras were rolling, yelled at him passionately for fury. And for us, they are heroes. Of course, a lot of uh, experts say, well, that was counterproductive. But was it counterproductive? First of all, Jeff Flake had said one thing beforehand, and he changed his tune afterhand. Now, uh, you may think that that's just by accident, and no. that, but it is not. And one thing you have to give value to is the fact that cameras were rolling. If he had been confronted by them with no no one ever to see it, I'm not sure it would have had that deep, uh, profound effect on him, their anger, because no one likes an angry woman, ask Serena Williams. And the thing that was most dramatic and the most stunning to almost everybody was when uh, Marie Gallagher said, look at me when I'm talking to you. No one, had, no one talks to senators like this. And this is what I've said all along. The whole conversation with Blasey Ford was like, if you, if you thought about it in terms of your own life, it was like, and you've seen this so often, women listeners, you're sitting at a table with other women and lots of men, and the conversation is going on at a ripping rate, and men are shouting at each other and telling each other what they think. And and a woman uh, chimes in and starts to speak, and they all respectfully sit back and listen and look at her patiently, probably not drumming their fingers on the table. And then when she is quite done, the conversation takes off again among the men as if she had never spoken. And that's how it felt. And I think that was the reaction that this woman was happen having, Maria Gallagher. Like, you don't even look at me. You don't recognize my personhood, not my femininehood, but my personhood. You have to listen to me, Senator. Now, there were some other women on stage in front of the cameras uh, during this hearing. Of course, that was the women on the committee. For some reason, all the women on the Senate Judici Judiciary Com Committee are Democrats. Kamala Harris, Maisie Hirono, Amy Klobuchar, and of course, Dianne Feinstein. They have to walk this line where they can't yell at the senators. They have to have senatorial you know, courtesy. Uh, on the other hand, it's 
clear they're pretty angry about this. What did you think of Kamala Harris, Maisie Hirono, Amy Klobuchar, and Dianne Feinstein? Well, I thought they did a good job. And they were, again, the way women have to be. They were well-behaved and uh, not overly um, outspoken, but said what they felt. I did feel a little bit about the committee that everyone was having their own soundbite, both the Democrats and the Republicans. So everyone said the same thing over and over and over again so that they could each have their own moment to to play to their uh, constituents. So there was that element. I thought Feinstein was very, very good and very strong. The one unexpected soundbite uh, was when Amy Klobuchar from my home state of Minnesota, former prosecutor herself. Thus gets an extra plug. (laughs) (laughs) Asked him uh, if he'd ever drunk so much he couldn't remember the next morning what he had done. And his answer was, I don't know, Senator, have you? It was a great moment. Um, It was almost as if Judge Kavanaugh thought to himself, why should the people at Saturday Night Live have to write their own scripts? I'll write it for them. <laughs> um, it was so rude. It was, in fact, it was so rude that he apologized for it, which was the only apology he a- issued. After the break. After, after the, break, the break. Somebody obviously told him. Somebody got to him. That was really out of line, Judge. <laughs> <laughs> You're going too far with this Trump imitation. And and uh, the senator herself, however, stayed very calm. She she has a thing of she she smiles a little when she gets angry, which is a feminine. We're taught to do that. A yes. feminine trick, but it really worked in this case. And said, "Please answer the question." She said, smiling at him. Yeah, and he never really answered the question. You mentioned. Tuesday night's event in Mississippi where Trump at that campaign rally mocked Christine Blasey Ford and the Republican audience laughed with glee uh, about this. Yeah, I was watching a, a clip of it and I was listening to the president do his shtick. And I was looking at the women sitting near him and wondering what were they thinking? How how were they reacting to this? And at first they had these blank faces on, but then they heard the audience respond and then they started to laugh themselves. And I thought, oh, this is, this is terribly sad. And, and watching these women laugh, the laughter reminded me of what Dr. Ford had said during her testimony when, when asked, what does she remember most from the attack? And she said, what I remember is their laughter and how they were having a great time at my expense laughing with each other. And Trump got people laughing at her. Yes, that it's this it's this all over again. This same thing with to mock a woman who is in that position. It's just hideous. And Lisa Murkowski did tell reporters the next morning mocking Dr. Ford was quote wholly inappropriate and in my view unacceptable, close quote. So that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. In my view, unacceptable, sure, but he's not the one she's judging to uh, whether he, or not he's a suitable uh, Supreme Court justice. So she can say that. We still don't know her mind on the on the final vote. Let's talk about another woman in this story who we have not seen in public, Deborah Ramirez, the second woman. She's the one who said that when she was a first-year student at Yale, Kavanaugh and his friends got her drunk at a dorm room party, and he pushed his penis in her face. 
interesting that Deborah Ramirez was not part of the elite group at Yale. She's the daughter of a telephone company lineman and a medical technician, half Puerto Rican. She had a job at school serving food to people like Brett Kavanaugh. Her background is really different from Christine Blasey Fords, who went to a private school and belonged to a country club. Yeah, this is a typical person who would be preyed upon by, by the elite, entitled, athletic, fraternity boys at an Ivy League school, if I may say so, having gone to one of them myself. And it didn't surprise me to hear this this class analysis of this event. And it's a very disturbing story, too. Obviously, there's no rape involved, but this is a sexual assault also. And it's a drunken event also. And it's just of great concern. And one of the things that interested me was all sorts of people coming and saying, well, she didn't know who it was. And she herself has said, I had some doubts about who it was. But People on the hallway and and Brett Kavanaugh's roommate now have alleged that they heard the story and that everybody knew it was Brett. So uh, there's some new polling on all of this. We wonder how this goes over with our fellow Americans. NPR just reported yesterday on the question who to believe there is a big gender gap. 39% of men say they believe Kavanaugh. 37% of men say they believe Ford, whereas women, 52% believe Ford, 27% Kavanaugh. So actually more men in America say they believe Kavanaugh. Women, almost twice as many women uh, believe her. Uh, The interesting thing is this gap disappears when you look at it by, by party. Democratic men and Democratic women both believe Ford by about 80 percent. And among Republicans, again, there's very little difference. Seventy-seven percent of Republican men believe Kavanaugh. Seventy-three percent of Republican women believe Kavanaugh. So what do you make of this and, and Republican women? How Do you understand Republican women saying they believe Kavanaugh? Look, I don't really understand it, but there's an analysis that can be made. This is the party of tradition. White men are unassailable. Certainly women can't come and accuse them. Certainly a person of color of any gender cannot come and accuse them uh, freely and be believed. Uh, You have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, and then you have to prove it some more. And even when you prove it some more, for centuries, you will not be believed. And this is changing now. But the Republicans, I guess, from this poll are kind of entrenched. And also, I think there's been a kind of number done on women in the Republican Party hearing this poll. Otherwise, I wouldn't have believed it possible uh, on making them feel that it is more about protecting the men in their family than it is about whether they really believe Kavanaugh or really believe Blasey Ford. Uh, they just don't want anyone to be able to accuse their white sons of such uh, an attack. Uh, let's talk about that. Republican mothers are being told that this is about their sons. Their sons are in danger. Their sons can be victimized by the accusations of these angry, irrational, aggressive uh, women. And the lesson of the Kavanaugh hearings in this view is that good men 
can be brought down by character assassination. And if Kavanaugh is defeated, you should fear for your sons. I, I wonder if you would like to comment more on that. First of all, what is the definition of a good man? Good man is possibly not someone who really gets drunk a lot and attacks women. And the other is the assumption behind this is also that women bring false accusations. The literature on this is very strong in showing that women do not bring false accusations. Of course, sometimes they do. Um, and that could be your son. But more likely, Republican women, I hate to say this, if an accusation is brought against your son, it may be that he did something wrong. And that's what is not being believed here, that, that a white man could do anything wrong against a woman is not being believed here. That's the problem. And by the way, I am a mother of three sons. Unfortunately, as my sons know, I did not have a daughter, and I complain about it endlessly. But I have, I have three sons. I trust my sons, I hope correctly, to not behave this way toward women ever, ever, and to make sure that they take care of a woman who is drunk in their presence and that no harm comes to her, and that they never, never, never laugh at those who are vulnerable. Amy Willens longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Amy, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, John. Next up, John Nichols on politics in the Senate. That's in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in the show, Berkeley Law School Dean Erwin Chemerinsky says none of the Republican appointees to the Supreme Court these days got there legitimately. But first, we need to talk about the Senate and the coming vote on the Kavanaugh nomination after the FBI investigation conducted earlier this week. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. He's been writing about the Kavanaugh nomination pretty much every day for the last weeks. Uh, John Nichols, welcome back on this grim evening. Yeah, make it stop, okay? <laughs> well, just to read... Obviously, with a rejection of the nomination, not a confirmation. Yeah. Uh, to review uh, how we got here, on Sunday, the Democrats were calling the renewed FBI investigation of Brett Kavanaugh, quote, a farce, close quote. On Monday, it seemed like those complaints worked because the White House authorized the FBI to expand its investigation by interviewing, quote, anyone it deems necessary as long as the review is finished by the end of the week, close quote. But the FBI turned in their findings to Trump on Wednesday. Mitch McConnell said the Senate will have a procedural vote tomorrow, Friday, and a potential final confirmation vote maybe on Saturday. Uh, we're speaking on Thursday. Uh, this is the day the committee members were allowed to read the report. Uh, where do we stand at this hour? Oh, John. You know, look. Where we stand at this hour is in a dire spot. 
because Mitch McConnell has signaled from the start of this. I mean, really, I think the signaling started back uh, with Merrick Garland about uh, two and a half years ago that um, nothing's going to stop him, that he is determined to advance this nomination through the process and to confirmation at any cost. And the interesting thing about it is that it's been so hard. You know, usually when you have Republicans in charge of the chamber, and when you've got the presidency, obviously, to make the appointment, um, unless you've nominated an absolutely atrocious contender for the high court, um, it should be doable. But, um, you know, the, the bottom line here is that they have nominated an absolutely atrocious contender, somebody who was never thoroughly vetted in the past and has not yet been vetted. And so they've had to go, on to, go to the heavy lifting, uh, if you will. And uh, as a result, what happened was they turned in an FBI report that has clearly some, some elements of it that are consequential, but is not a complete report. They did not talk to the major players in this storyline. And so, you know, it's essentially, imagine that you have a movie without the stars. You have a, a novel without the main characters. It's, it's not doable. And so the FBI report is a farce. And yet it is more than a thousand pages with, from what I understand, uh, including the, uh, you know, the raw transcripts and, and other elements. And, and so you end up with a, um, a piece of work that the senators have to read, no matter which way they're going on this. They, they, they've got to take a look at it. The problem is that Mitch McConnell, in his desperation to you know, make this happen, has, uh, has created a circumstance that is almost unimaginably unworkable. Senators are given uh, an hour uh, to participate in some sort of reading of it, whether they're reading it themselves or whether an aide is reading it out loud to a group of senators. Uh, it's chaotic. It's shambolic. It's not functional. Uh, one senator, Lisa Murkowski, says she wants to read all of it. Uh, it's hard to imagine how that can happen in the short amount of time that is available. And so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a chaos. It's a mess. Uh, and that's exactly what Mitch McConnell wants. He wants the confusion. And he is hoping that uh, tomorrow he gets his initial vote, and then probably Saturday he gets a confirmation vote. Uh, it's so bad that some people have stepped up on conscience. Today, Heidi Heitkamp, the Democratic senator from North Dakota, who's in a very tough re-election race in a state that did favor Trump, uh, said she would vote against the Kavanaugh nomination and said she would vote against it uh, because of her own experience, because of her own you know, background as a prosecutor who knows about issues of this sort, and also because of the process, which she was, she's been quite critical of. And I guess the, the hope for the opposition to Kavanaugh, and it, and it is an opposition that is impassioned and it is more energetic now than it's ever been. The hope is that uh, that call of conscience can reach to uh, one more Democratic senator who's still wavering, that's Joe Manchin from West Virginia, and to 
at least two Republicans. And at this point, it appears that the Republicans who might, and I want to really emphasize the word might, who might be drawn across the line are Lisa Murkowski from Alaska and potentially Jeff Flake uh, from Arizona, who kind of got this whole thing started. Um, I'm kind of taking Susan Collins out of the running uh, because it, it just seems that at every turn, Susan Collins makes excuses for uh, the way Mitch McConnell has handled this, and frankly, for Brett Kavanaugh. So we have an FBI report with no interviews with Kavanaugh or Ford or 20 other witnesses who said that they could corroborate the stories <clears throat> either of Ford or of the second accuser, uh, Kavanaugh's Yale classmate Deborah Ramirez. Just to remind our listeners, only 4% of Kavanaugh's records have been released. The nominee lied under oath something like 10 times. So that's why we say this is a, a cover-up, not a confirmation process. Uh, John Nichols, what has happened to the United States Senate? Well, that's the real story here, isn't it? Of course, the first story, and the one that we have to pay closest attention to, is this remarkable struggle. Uh, the fact that uh, tens of thousands of people are on the streets in, in Washington, and frankly, um, tens of thousands more, maybe hundreds of thousands around the country, saying, don't let this thing happen. Um, and the reason they're doing that is because it is so consequential. This is a lifetime appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. So that's that, you know, that's the heart of the matter. But then you ask, well, how do we get to this place? How do you get to a place where someone like Brett Kavanaugh is literally uh, on the verge of, of being confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court when there are, as you just detailed, so many fundamental questions? And then at the heart of it, uh, the core question that, that uh, the Senate should always consider in this regard is, does this person have the temperament? to sit on the high court, and obviously yeah. his testimony last Thursday, whether you believed it or not, um, signaled a, a volatility, a rage, and an a, a intense partisanship that, that calls that into question. Um, so we, we end up in a situation where the only way that this is moving forward is because Mitch McConnell has deliberately altered and broken the rules of the Senate and the basic principles of the Senate uh, in a way that undermines the, the idea of having a system of checks and balances, the notion that anyone who goes on the high court must do so with the advice and consent of the Senate. This, is, this has just been tossed out. Uh, McConnell and the White House, as Jeff Merkley has suggested, appear to have conspired from the start of this thing to keep critical documents away from senators, uh, they held hearings that were constrained and limited. They did not begin to give the amount of time that was necessary to consider this nomination. Uh, they rushed votes and they rushed consideration at every turn. They uh, did not do what was simply logical when major charges, major allegations were raised by Dr. Ford and others. At a late stage in the process, they didn't immediately reopen the background check. They literally held a hearing before the FBI information was gathered. How do you do that? Um, then when the FBI uh, had been kept out of it, but they had a hearing 
where Dr. Ford delivered incredibly compelling testimony. Uh, they were finally forced by one senator, Jeff Flake, in collaboration with a couple of Democrats to allow for some FBI inquiry, but they clearly put incredibly strict limits on that inquiry, no matter what they say. Uh, the FBI didn't even take the whole amount of time that had been allotted. They had a week. They didn't take the full week. And they, as you just noted, did not uh, interview literally dozens of people that they should have interviewed. So it was a manipulated, in my view, uh, FBI inquiry. And then when the FBI inquiry came back, they said, well, you know, we're only going to let senators look at it for an hour in this incredibly restricted, uh, bizarre scenario where it's, you don't have the chance to, you know, kind of linger over a, a lengthy document, review it, consider it, um, which completely undermines the whole concept of advice and consent, which should be given from a place of knowledge and from a place of reflection. And then, even as this FBI report was coming forward, they scheduled or at least signaled, I should say signaled, that they wanted to schedule the vote uh, immediately and are rolling through that process without any kind of deliberation. They obviously want to have an incredibly short debate on an incredibly major issue. And so at the end of the day, what I argued in a, in a nation piece is that to save this nomination, Mitch McConnell has decided to kill the Senate. John Nichols, his piece, Mitch McConnell is Killing the Senate, is posted now at thenation.com. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's always great to have you on the show. It's an honor to be with you, my friend. Next up, Republicans on the Supreme Court, how did they get there? Erwin Chemerinsky will explain. That's in a minute when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about how the Republican appointees on the Supreme Court got there. For that, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley, the author of many books, uh, including Closing the Courthouse Doors, How Your Constitutional Rights Became Unenforceable and Free Speech on Campus. His op-eds appear regularly in the New York Times, the LA Times, and other places. He frequently argues appellate cases and also at the United States Supreme Court. Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome back. It's always great to talk with you. Well, you have this new piece at the American Prospect arguing that each of the conservative justices, Clarence Thomas, John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and then Kavanaugh or someone like him, came onto the court in a manner that lacks legitimacy. My first thought was, wow, I never thought of it that way before. But, of course, Clarence Thomas is the easiest case. Anita Hill's sexual harassment complaint against him was sort of ignored and shrugged off. But, but remind us, could we have gotten strong evidence back in the day confirming her story? The evidence was overwhelming that Clarence Thomas committed sexual harassment and that Anita Hill had told the truth. A book came out just a few years later titled Strange Justice that documented all of this. 
Clarence Thomas was confirmed by a 52 to 48 margin. To this point, the closest margin any judgment confirmed by in American history. And he's always been under the cloud of a lack of legitimacy because of the way in which he was confirmed. Yeah, so, okay, so Clarence Thomas is the the obvious, Clarence Thomas is the obvious Republican justice who got there illegitimately. But but what's your argument, what's your argument for John Roberts? He was confirmed 78 to 22, and in Samuel Alito, he was confirmed 58 to 42, a lot closer, but but still a, a, a strong majority. What do you say about Roberts and Alito? I think we have to remember Roberts and Alito most certainly on the court only because of Bush versus Gore. And Bush versus Gore is one of the most shameful Supreme Court cases in American history. It's the first time that the Supreme Court ever decided a presidential election. It was the five most conservative Republicans voting in favor of Bush and stopping the counting of the uncounted votes in Florida. If Al Gore had won the presidency in 2000, in all likelihood, he would have been the one to pick the replacement for Rehnquist and O'Connor, not George W. Bush. And then there's Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. I think a lot of people remember how he got there, but remind us briefly how Neil Gorsuch got nominated and confirmed. When Antonin Scalia died on February 13, 2016, President Barack Obama nominated Chief Judge Merrick Garland. The Senate refused to hold hearings or a vote on Merrick Garland. This is unprecedented in American history. Prior to 2016, 24 times in American history, there was a vacancy in the last year of President's term. In 21 of 24, the Senate confirmed. In three instances, the Senate denied confirmation. But never before had the Senate said, no hearings, no vote. Merrick Garland's nomination languished longer than any nomination in American history. Even then, Neil Gorsuch got confirmed only because Senate Republicans changed the long-standing Senate rules that a lot of filibuster. So we're recording this on Thursday evening. We don't yet know what will happen in the confirmation vote for Brett Kavanaugh. We're told there'll be a procedural vote tomorrow, Friday, and then possibly the final confirmation vote as early as Saturday. Uh, what do you think is the strongest argument against Brett Kavanaugh? There are so many arguments against Brett Kavanaugh. I believe that he lied repeatedly at his confirmation hearings, but the major and minor things, and somebody who lies at confirmation hearings shouldn't be confirmed. I think he showed a stunning lack of judicial temperament at his hearings a week ago today. I also think that his conservative judicial ideology puts all of our rights in jeopardy. And I know that uh, a huge number of law professors signed a letter uh, opposing Kavanaugh, and now uh, uh, Justice Stevens has changed his mind. He had originally endorsed Kavanaugh and now has come out against him. Is, is, uh, how important is that? It's important if it matters to three likely swing vote Republican senators. <laughs> okay. Jeff Flake, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski. It's all an audience of about three at this point. If they're persuaded by the law professor's letter and by Justice Stevens, then Kavanaugh will be defeated. But if they go along with the rest of the Republicans, Kavanaugh is going to be confirmed. That's what it comes down to. 
You know, I have a lot of friends who say, what's the difference, even if Kavanaugh is defeated, uh, Trump will nominate somebody worse, probably Amy Coney Barrett, uh, so we wouldn't get anywhere by defeating Kavanaugh. What do you say to that argument? In 1987, Robert Bork was the nominee, and I remember people saying, defeat Bork, you'll end up with somebody just as bad. Instead, we end up with Anthony Kennedy. Bork would have been the fifth vote to overrule Roe versus Wade in 1992. Kennedy was the fifth vote to affirm Roe versus Wade. Bork would have been the fifth vote to eliminate all affirmative action. Kennedy, just two years ago, was the, just wrote the opinion to uphold affirmative action. So I think it's important to take these fights one at a time. I think Kavanaugh needs to be defeated now. And I think the need to defeat Kavanaugh is much greater because of what went on last week in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah. I think confirming Kavanaugh in light of what happened last week is a tremendous slap in the face to sexual assault survivors, to all who believe that there should be a minimum of judicial temperament in order to get confirmed for the Supreme Court. Last question. <clears throat> Let us... Uh look at the dark possibility, pretty likely, it seems at this point, that Kavanaugh will be confirmed, maybe as early as Saturday. Then we will have a sort of a semi-permanent for the next couple of decades anywhere. Anyway, <clears throat> Republican majority of five to four on the, on the court. You're a person who spends a lot of time in the Ninth Circuit arguing. Uh, you've argued before the Supreme Court. What What is it going to be like for liberals and progressives when the court is completely in the hands of right-wing Republicans? We're going to have to look for other forums to fight. We're going to have to do more to litigate under state constitutions in state courts. We're going to have to do more with regard to trying to win in city councils and state legislatures. We're going to have to do more in the way of community organizing. That's not what I know much about, but it just seems to me we're going to have to find ways to fight harder and better than ever before. Erwin Chemerinsky, he wrote for the American Prospect about the illegitimate process that gave us four Republican Supreme Court justices and looks like it's about to give us a fifth. Erwin, thanks so much for talking with us today. Always a pleasure. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.